It's either a violation of the innermost core of the Hippocratic Oath or a humane, compassionate solution. Today we'll be speaking with a member of the Oregon Department of Human Services and discussing the reality of the controversial Death with Dignity Act. You're listening to Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, your host, and with us today from the Oregon Department of Human Services is epidemiologist Dr. Katrina Hedberg. Welcome, Katrina, and thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you. Can you tell us a little about yourself and how you became involved in the Death with Dignity Act? The Death with Dignity Act was first voted on in 1994, and it was held up by court injunction for three years. So it first took effect in 1997, although the first patient who took the medication, that occurred in in 1998. The law itself assigned to the Department of Human Services the responsibility of keeping track of the data, keeping track of patients who participated in it. If we saw any noncompliance, we're not regulatory in this regard, we'd report to the the Oregon Board of Medical Examiners, but we keep track of the data and issue an annual report. And I've been an epidemiologist here for now almost 18 years, so I've been involved in this since the very beginning. Can you talk to us about the act in general and how it's formed? What are the rules and regulations? How does it work, in other words? Sure. So it was a citizen's initiative, which means that it wasn't our legislature that passed it, but rather it was put on the ballot. And as I said, it was voted on twice, first in 1994, then held up by injunction, and then again voted on in 1997. And that's when it took effect. The stipulations of the law are that physicians can prescribe a lethal dose of medication to patients who are qualified. It doesn't address any of the issues after a prescription is written, but in order for a prescription to be written, the patient has to be a resident of Oregon, and they have to be terminally ill with six months or less to live. And the medication itself needs to be self-administered. And in Oregon, that has been interpreted as being an oral dose of medication. So this is not euthanasia where a doctor gives an injection. In addition, the patient does have to be an adult, so 18 years or older, and they have to be capable of making and communicating a health care decision. So this would not be applicable to patients with Alzheimer's, for example, in addition to cancer. The request has to be voluntary, and actually there are three requests the patient has to make. There are two verbal requests, and they must be separated by at least 15 days, and then there has to be one request in writing that has been witnessed by at least two people, not family members or someone who might stand to inherit, for example, from the patient. In addition to these requests, there are actually two physicians who need to be involved that both confirm the diagnosis as well as the prognosis that this patient has six months or less to live and that the patient is capable and patients need to be informed of alternatives. So hospice care has to be offered. The patient does not have to be enrolled, but it does have to be offered to them as an example. Okay, well, let me ask you a couple of questions here. There's a lot of information. A resident of Oregon, how long does one have to be a resident of Oregon? This was not in the initial legislation, so our legislature did define residency. But again, what they came up with is that the physician is the one who determines residency. 
factors indicating residency include but are not limited to Oregon driver's license, leasing or owning property, income tax returns. So those indicate, but again, a lot of people at the end of life may move to another state or somewhere else to be taken care of by loved ones. And there's nothing that states a patient cannot move to Oregon for end-of-life care, nor does it say they have to be here for at least six months or whatever. So it's up to a physician to determine that they're a resident, but it is not that there is no sort of bright line here about how long someone has to live or exactly what they have to do. What you're using in the prescription is what, phenobarbital or... Again, there's nothing that's outlined in the legislation itself. The two most common medications are pentobarbital and secobarbital, and it kind of depends on the drugs have been on and off the market for varying periods of time and oral medications are not, so it's fluctuated, but it is uh, barbiturates are the drugs that are being prescribed. And a large dose. Large dose, 9 or 10 grams. Okay. And for signing consent, is there any provision at all if somebody is incapable of signing it, like someone's in a coma? That just doesn't work under this, does it? Correct. Again, the legislation says that they must be capable of making and communicating a health care decision. Now, one of the things in the Oregon law, again, I had mentioned that it's oral. In the past, one of the groups of people who's been particularly interested or has participated at a high rate are patients who have ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Now, the issue becomes, well, what if they don't have the ability to swallow very well or lift the medication to their mouth, et cetera? Again, this is not at all addressed in the statute, so it's really up to local law enforcement. or This is the kind of thing that has to play out in court because it is not addressed in the legislation itself. But comatose would not, that would not work because those patients would not be able to make and communicate a healthcare decision. Okay. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Katrina Hedberg, an epidemiologist with the Oregon Department of Human Services. And today we're discussing Oregon's controversial Death with Dignity Act. So let's go back and talk about ALS for a second. So it would almost seem that somewhere early in the process you'd want to make this decision so that you could be prepared. But when you actually take the medication, does there need to be a physician in attendance? No. So again, the legislation goes out in detail the steps that need to happen up to the point the prescription is written. Now, the patient is supposed to have six months or less to live. And again, with cancer, enrollment in hospice, that's one of the uh, qualifications for being enrolled in hospice. So people can make that determination. However, people may obviously, even with a terminal prognosis, may live longer than that. And not all of these diseases have necessarily predictable course of events. But that's, again, what's spelled out in the statute. So theoretically, if I had my prescription and I had ALS and I could not take the medication myself, I got to that point, if somebody, a family member, actually gave it to me, no one would know. Is that correct? Because you don't need a physician in attendance when the medication is actually taken. Or am I wrong? That is correct. Now, in terms of in attendance, and I can talk about the experience, again, it's a little bit different than what's required in the law. A number of physicians do choose to be present when the patient takes the medication as part of their sort of ongoing care and support for that patient and the family. Oftentimes, there are medical or volunteers who are there who may or may not have medical training, but you're absolutely correct that there is no, our agency, for example, there is nobody who goes out to watch what happens when the patient takes the medication. What about depression? I've read about this as we, as we read about assisted suicide and euthanasia. Um, there are a lot of patients who are terminally ill 
who really are, are quite depressed, do patients have to be evaluated by a mental health specialist? The statute does not require that. What it requires, again, are the two physicians, both the person who writes the prescription and a consulting physician who have to determine that the patient is capable. Now, that has been interpreted as also then in the absence of depression, etc. And a number of physicians do choose to have a psychiatrist or a psychologist evaluate the patient. And the statute actually says that, that if either of the two physicians involved feel that the patient might be suffering from a mental illness or something that prevents them from making a decision that they should consult a psychologist or a psychiatrist. It is not required by the statute. That said, there are a lot of patients who, about 80% or a little more, who are enrolled in hospice at the time of death when they take the medication. And as part of hospice enrollment, having a mental health provider do an evaluation is part of mental health. However, that may be a psychiatric social worker or something like that. Again, this is not required by the statute. All right, let's talk about the figures for a second. I'm looking at a bar graph in front of me, and I'll just look at 2007 alone. It seems that there were like 85 prescriptions written, but just under 50 people actually took the prescription. So do you think that people really just want control, even if they're not choosing to take this medication? So the things that motivate patients, that's a very good question. I do think that there are a number of patients who do want control at the end of their life. In fact, when we speak with some physicians, they say that the patient requested a prescription, but they knew that the patient didn't really intend to take it. There are other physicians who make sure the patient has taken all of the steps to the point the prescription is written, but they don't actually write the prescription until the patient makes a decision that they are ready to take it and they dispense the medication at that time. So again, even looking at just prescriptions that are written, a number of people took it, the practice around that varies quite a bit from the physicians who literally write a prescription, it's a piece, you know, white piece of paper they hand to the patient and say, you know, you may fill it if you wish and whatever, up to the point that the physician is really involved throughout the whole process, up to the point of dispensing and attending the death. So again, that group of people that you're speaking about who have the prescriptions and didn't take them, motivations could vary, but clearly they may have decided that having it in hand gave them some control over the manner and timing of their death, but they elected to die of their underlying disease. Kind of a just-in-case it really gets bad. Now, is there still a lot of controversy in Oregon about this? The legislature, over the past 10 years that the law has been in effect, the legislature has brought up this issue of the Death with Dignity Act a couple of times, but it's been mostly to clarify things like residencies that I mentioned earlier or clarify the number of days, reporting requirements, those kinds of things, but really has not made any effort to recall the statute itself. So there have been a lot of legal challenges to the law, including the U.S. Attorney General at that time, John Ashcroft, who was trying to reinterpret the Controlled Substances Act, which again, barbiturates are the primary medication prescribed for this, but would preclude physicians from prescribing these under four, the Death with Dignity Act. However, Ashcroft, you know, that the case was argued all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court upheld Oregon's law. So it probably is less controversial in Oregon, perhaps, although we still have very strong opponents to the law as well as advocacy organizations are still active. But at this point, I think that a lot of the discussion really is more around what's happening in other states. I know that, for example, Washington State has a similar ballot initiative that they're trying to get onto the ballot in Washington State. Is Washington the only state you know about? 
Oh, no. Over the years, there have been a number, including uh, Maine, Michigan. I can't remember if California did or not. But anyway, it has basically failed in every other state that it's been on the ballot. And are they usually citizen initiatives in each of these states? Yes, is my understanding. I think Hawaii did too. I mean, again, these are people who called me, and so there may be people who are interested in getting it on the ballot, but I, I don't really follow whether or not it got on the ballot and whether it's been voted on. It doesn't seem like an awfully high number of people are actually asking for prescriptions. If last year 80 people in the state or 90 people, whatever it was, just 85, that's not a high number. Overall, in Oregon, we have around 30,000 deaths. The number of people who participated in this has ranged from the first couple of years where there were, let's see, the very first year, I think there were 16 people. Up to last year, we had the highest number at 49. But if you take that into the context, our 30,000 deaths, it's only around 16 deaths per 10,000, and those are people who take the medication. So I think in terms of absolute numbers, it is small. Dr. Hedberg, thanks for being our guest today and speaking with us about this very sensitive subject. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMDXM is here for you, the health professionals who care for your patients. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, where our newly redecorated website with our on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library, including this show. Register on the website and enter the promo code RADIO for six months of free podcasts, and we thank you for listening.